Hey, Cole, are you ready to go back to the 80s this week? Well, I've never been there, so can't exactly go back. Well, I'm going to take you there because I am serving today some retro daddy issues in 1987's The Stepfather. I love slash have a lot of daddy issues. Welcome to Second to Die, horror fiction podcast, where we talk about lots of things. And sometimes horror. Sometimes horror. I'm Max. And I'm Cole. We're your hosts. Thank you for listening to us ramble again. Today there might be some rambling. I'm just going to, I'm a forewarn. But, as I said, I'm doing an an 80s movie because I had been doing some modern ones, so I thought I wanted to mix it up a little bit. Doing one that I have actually seen before, but I did rewatch it for this just to get it fresh in my head. It was... Um, not as good as I remember it, but that's okay. <laughs> so it's The Stepfather. It's a 1987 film. It's directed by Joseph Rubin. The film was written by Donald E. Westlake. And the story was from Westlake with Carolyn Lefcourt and Brian Garfield. And also an uncredited rewrite by David Lorty. Lorry? Ooh, that's a weird one. Lowry. There we go. A lot of these last names are somehow very bland and very hard to say at the same time. Like Westlake, it's just a lot of consonants kind of crammed together. Yeah. Also, they kind of sound like geographical locations. It's like Westlake, Left Court, Garfield. I mean, maybe not that last one, but not Garfield. <laughs> anyway, this is stupid. So, okay. Anyway, I just thought it was weird because there's a lot of people writing this story. It's not that intricate. It's not Game of Thrones, you know? Anyway, this film is loosely based off of real-life mass murderer John List. Ew. Who is John List? I hear the audience wondering aloud, telepathically, in their mind. Well. From the future. Yeah, from the future. Okay. John Emile List. And I'm going to talk about this a little bit because my summary of the movie won't be that long, but I'm also not going to be like super true crimey. So anyways, he was born September 17th, 1925, died March 21st, 2008. This is actually a fascinating story. He was an American mass murderer. Okay. Resume. And longtime fugitive. It's just lots of skills. On November 9th, 1971, he killed his wife, his mother, and his three children in their home in Westfield, New Jersey. Yikes. Yeah. He listed uh, financial problems as well as the perception that his family members were strained from their religious faith as rationale for their murders, basically saying that killing them would assure their souls a place in heaven where he eventually hoped to rejoin them. And he wasn't locked up for the rest of his life for this? Or put in a mental institution where he could get the help that he so desperately clearly needs? Well, to be honest, family annihilators usually aren't like institutionalized they're usually just imprisoned and he was eventually but here's what's really fascinating about this after he murdered his family he fled and assumed a new identity remarried and eluded justice for 18 years when he was finally apprehended on june 1st 1989 in virginia remarried to somebody else it only happened after a broadcast of the television program america's most wanted 
Oh my god. How did this happen, you say? Well. Oh, I'm so sorry. Can I tell a quick story about America's Most Wanted? Sure. Okay, so at my first library job, I had a patron call, and she was very upset because someone had given her the phone number to America's Most Wanted, and she was like, that's not what it is, and I want whatever the host's name was. I want his personal cell phone number so that I can complain because he'll be so appalled, et cetera, et cetera. It's fine. That's irrelevant. But after I got off the phone, it was a very long conversation. My boss was like, well, did she say what the number calls now? And I was like, no, it didn't. Or she or was like, no, she didn't. So we called it. My boss put it on speaker in a one-room library. It was a phone sex line. <laughs> hmm. I don't know if that's a successful business strategy. I don't know. Phone sex? No, like adopt. Well, yes, but adopting another well-known like 800 number for a phone sex line. That would be great. Like it would be great to do like, I don't know. I'd have to look and see like what what, um, weird numbers are available now. But that I could see that being fun. Anyway. Okay. So basically he was caught after his story was aired on America's Most Wanted. Reasoning being because apparently... There were no, well, this was 1971. So there were, I guess, no reliable photographs of him. All of the photographs that existed of this person had been basically like destroyed. So they couldn't like issue photos of him to the public. I would like to do the same with all photographs of me. Yeah. Another wild fact about it is that the bodies of his family that he left in in the house were not discovered until nearly a month later due to their reclusive tendencies. I just am identifying with this man a lot more than I'm comfortable with. Destroying photos of himself, being a recluse. It's really, I mean, it's so crazy to like run away and remarry. And then like 18 years go by, I would assume after 18 years, you're kind of like, well, this is all in the past. Well, I've lived my life. Yeah. So then he was eventually arrested after that America's Most Wanted. I think it was like his neighbor turned him in. Neighbors always turn people in. Let me tell you, the amount of people that I get that their neighbors are the ones who ratted them out, it's astounding. Because neighbors are nosy ass little bitches. They really are. But so he was convicted. He was sentenced to serve life in prison and he died. I can't remember what he died of, but he did die while serving his time. That's not what happens to this guy in the movie, though. So he's not a serial killer. He only killed one family. I mean, they called him... Well, they don't call him a serial killer. They call him a mass murderer. Okay. I say only killed one family. Continue. Anyway. Okay. So let's get to kind of this movie. So the movie, it stars Terry O'Quinn as the stepfather. He goes by three different names, but the biggest one is Jerry Blake. So I call him Jerry for most of the time. Terry O'Quinn is like... he's He's a good actor in this. He was very young in this and so... Actually, a lot more handsome than I remember him being in his younger days. And then the other two people are Stephanie Maine. She is the daughter. She's played by Jill Sholin. And then Susan Maine is the mother, played by Shelley Hack. Stephanie, the daughter, is supposed to be 16 in this movie. She looks like she's about 20. And then, which isn't that bad. And then her mom, Susan, is her mom and looks like she's like 25. So it's like, I don't know. There's like a weird age thing going on there, but it's like whatever. All right. So real quick, before I get into the plot and what happens, the plot, unfortunately, isn't that 
jam-packed full of action, but it is what it is. So The Stepfather was originally marketed as a psychological thriller. It did not do well as such. So New Century, who put it out, remarketed it as a slasher film, and then it was much, much more successful. It grossed, I think, ultimately like $2.5 million, something like that. So it did pretty well. Also, there's a remake of the movie from 2009 that has Penn Badley. Is that his name? Yeah. Badly, Bagley, something along those lines. The guy from You. Yeah. The Dreamboat Stalker, Joe Goldberg, and You. Also, I think he did Gossip Girl, which I have not seen, but I think you have. I can confirm that he did Gossip Girl, <laughs> yes. He plays the Stephanie character, basically. They redo it so that the kid is a boy. Well, the kid is a boy instead of a daughter. All right. So, the movie. Picture it. This is clearly somewhere, well... It's probably in California, but it looks kind of Midwesty. We see a nice house, and then it's a bathroom, and there's this like super scruffy daddy guy. It's Terry O'Quinn, but he has like a beard, and he actually looks really good. Um, and he, but he's like covered in blood, and so they're like, hmm, "This probably isn't great." So he's in the bathroom, and he's cleaning up. He turns the shower on. He takes off his clothes. Not only do we immediately get to see his cute little butt, but we also get like peen in the bathroom mirror. I feel like you didn't used to get peen ever. No. And it, I mean, if I didn't know how movies worked, I'd be like, was that a mistake? Because you see it in the mirror, like very, very clearly. Yeah. But obviously, like there are no mistakes in movies. You just fix it. That's why we sound so flawless, because I fix all of our mistakes. <laughs> and there are a lot of them. <laughs> yeah. It's like a 40 minute episode is three and a half hours of recording. No, it's not really like that. No, but gentle listener, just a, an indicator. I have had Max cut two of my jokes already. <laughs> yeah, well, so, okay. Immediately, I'm into this movie because it's like hot daddy, covered in blood, cute butt. It's got everything you really need in a movie. Oh, however, he quickly shaves off his beard, literally drops from about a seven or eight to like a five. Like, it's not not a good look on him. Especially because this is California, <laughs> yeah. where a five is really like a one and a half. Well, it depends what part of California you're in, but yeah. This is true. He's like a six, so like an LA two. Yeah, exactly. So then he gets dressed. He puts on a suit with a cute little Argyle sweater vest. Okay, but I do love a good sweater vest, and I do love Argyle. Yeah. He actually looks really adorable. So then he goes downstairs, and it's funny because he goes from wearing this, like, suit upstairs, walking down, and the living room is, like, bloody carnage and dead bodies everywhere. Like you do. Yeah. So then he whistles a little tune to himself and walks away. But you know he's crazy because he walks away in the middle of the street when there are two perfectly good sidewalks right on either side. But he's like, no, I'm going to walk in the street. People do that here all the time. Yeah. Stop doing it. Please stop doing that. I will run you over. Okay, so then we go to today, and we see Stephanie and her mom, Susan. They're in the yard having a leaf fight, like mom and daughters do in very different other types of movies. (laughs) This entire movie feels like the setup for a porn. It really was. Like, they're literally, I mean, first of all, they're very clearly prop leaves because they're too, like, uniformly colored. Also, as somebody who grew up in the Midwest and had to rake leaves a lot, Leaf piles are actually kind of disgusting. Like, they get, like, dirt and bugs and muck in them. But these are just, like, dried, like, leaves. And they're taking, like, baskets of them and, like, throwing on, throwing them on each other and giggling. And I'm like, 
literally in my head just being waiting for them to like take off their shirts and be like, <laughs> oh, I got leaves in my shirt. But that did not happen. But I mean, like, seriously, what's up with a leaf fight? Nobody does that. It's like a fucking pillow fight. No one has pillow fights. No. I mean, we ha- I had pillow fights with my brother, but it was more like I knock you down the stairs with this pillow. The end. Now you're in the hospital losing teeth. That's a true story. Wait, he lost teeth? I knocked out one of, well, my, I don't know if I should say my brother's name, but I knocked out one of my younger brother's teeth by putting a pillowcase over his head and pushing him down the stairs. Yeah. Was it a baby tooth, at least? I think it was a baby tooth, yeah. Okay, good. Boys are crazy, man. We do all sorts of stuff. My brother and I did have, never did any of that. We just don't talk now. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so the leaf fight is interrupted when Jerry rolls up. This still tracks for the opening of a porn. <laughs> I'm really waiting for you to prove me wrong here, Max, and you have yet to achieve that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so unfortunately, nothing interesting happens. Jerry comes up. It's Stephanie makes it very clear that she does not like Jerry because he's like the stepdad. And so, like, we get that little, like, spoiled 80s brat vibe from her. And that's that. Then it quickly cuts to Stephanie's school and she is an art class, like, throwing down with this girl. Like, literally, like, throwing this girl over a table. Like, super fight. Like, paint getting everywhere. Classic Stephanie behavior. Classic Stephanie. Also, I saw a lot of those types of fights when I was in high school. <laughs> because I'm from the panhandle. We, yeah. I mean, I never saw, like, physical fights like that. But My favorite was in... We had a class called Life Management Skills. <laughs> in Florida? Uh, it, well, That class needs to be revamped. Okay, but what Life Management Skills actually was, because I grew up not even in the Bible Belt, in like the fucking Bible crotch below the Bible Belt, Life Management Skills was actually, here's all the STDs you'll get if you have sex. Mm. <laughs> um, But it was held in the band room, so there were like band instruments, and... A friend of mine got in a fight with someone else and like threw the other person onto a timpani, mm. which is a large drum mm-hmm. for any gentle listener who may not know. That was my favorite. <laughs> I never saw any high school fights. We also, my high school didn't have sexual education either. I don't think. <laughs> That's because you went to an honors high school. None of you needed it. Well. I don't know. I wasn't really getting late in high school, but I'm sure somebody was. I wasn't either. I say that like I had a sex life before college. Okay. Anyways, so we learn. Oh, also, Stephanie got expelled for that. Unrealistic, but. She would get suspended. But I guess if it was like a a last resort or not last resort, if she had had like multiple problems before. Yeah. Yeah. It turns out, like, her, the backstory of it is, like, her dad died a year ago, and her mom moved on real fast, and so, like, she has all these, like, unresolved issues from her father passing away and having, like, a new stepfather so soon. Okay, so we also learned that Jerry had been using the name Henry Morrison before when he killed his old family, and the ex-wife's brother is a reporter or something, and he's, like, on the case, like, trying to solve who did it. Well, I guess he knows who did it. He's trying to figure out where he where Jerry went to. So, okay. So back to Stephanie. So Stephanie walks down to the basement one day, and Jerry is like literally freaking the absolute fuck out, like yelling and shouting things at himself. 
And literally like a quote, for instance, is you're a good boy. You're going to keep this family together. But as he's doing it, he's like slamming his hands on the table and shit like that. And Stephanie's there like, uh, and then he turns around and sees her and he's like, oh, hi. Oh, you know, you know how it is. I just have to let off some steam sometimes. And Stephanie is like, "Mm, okay, sure. And then she leaves, which is the proper reaction. You just say, okay. And then you leave slowly without turning her back. And then she's in therapy because of her dad dying. And she tells a therapist about it. And the therapist is like, oh, come on, Stephanie, you're overreacting. We all do that. And I'm like, no, we absolutely fucking do not all do that. No. I mean, I talk to myself almost constantly, but I don't, like, yell at myself. I talk to myself all the time. It's my my mother who, in retrospect, says a lot of things that probably are not true or wise always imparted little bits of wisdom on us and still continues to do so today, even when you don't want them. But one thing she did say is that talking to yourself is a sign of intelligence, but answering yourself is a sign of insanity. Oops. (laughs) I mean, I guess it kind of depends how you're answering it. If you're answering it, like you're almost like another person, that's probably not such a great sign. Yeah. I'm, I definitely don't do that, but I will be like, do I want this? Yes, I do. And I think that's different. Or if you're like, would you fuck me? I'd fuck me. I'd fuck me so hard. We're not talking about the sounds of the lambs. Oh, such a good line, though. Okay. Oh, my God. I used to quote that line so much at my old job with my coworker, Adrian. We shared an office, and it was literal silence of the lamb quotes because she also loved it and was a weirdo like me. And we would literally just, like, throw, throw back sounds of the lambs all day, all the time. It was, it was fantastic. Anyway. Real professional work environment. Oh my god. You know, you gotta you gotta make do. So okay. So at this point, Stephanie had read about the murders of the other family and she decides that she thinks Jerry is that person. And because we're in the eighties, she writes a letter to the newspaper asking for his picture because they don't actually like publish his picture for some reason. I think they're they I don't I don't know why. They because they do have a picture. They send her the picture in the mail. But Jerry intercepts the mail and replaces the picture with somebody else to throw Stephanie off the trail. Okay. All right. Then in a storyline that I'm not going to get into because of time reasons, Jerry beats Stephanie's therapist to death with a two by four, which is whatever. He was not a good therapist anyways. So we'll move on from that. So Jerry at this point kind of thinks that people might be onto him. So he rents a new house and is getting ready to start a new family by like hitting on his neighbor. Keep in mind, he still has the other family. And like this one point where um, Susan calls his job and they're like, he quit seven days ago and he comes home and she's like, where have you been? And this is kind of this scene. And then he basically tells Susan that the new secretary just said he quit because she doesn't know anything. And Susan's like, oh, (laughs) okay." It's like, okay, (laughs) nobody's that stupid. But also secretaries are goddesses. Yeah. I mean, I I don't know if yours listens to this podcast, but if you do, we love you. Yeah. I mean, I would be shocked if she did, but maybe she does. So it's all going well because Susan is clearly an idiot and she's believing him. But then he makes the classic mistake of referring to himself as the wrong name because he uses three different names throughout the course of this movie. And then Susan, who, as dim as she may be, is like, Wait a second. So then he's like, oh, fuck, now I got to kill this one. 
So he hits her in the face of the telephone, which looks like it hurts pretty bad, and knocks her down the stairs. Then the journalist comes to the house because he had kind of like sleuthed his way into figuring out who Jerry was. And he comes into the house and Jerry stabs him and he dies. It's actually really anticlimactic. And But the whole point is the journalist had a gun, but he ends up like dropping the gun and Jerry doesn't pick it up because why would he? That'll come into play in about two minutes. So then Stephanie is upstairs and here's where we are treated to the incredibly uncomfortable shower scene of somebody who is supposed to be 16 years old where we get full butt and full boobs. And I'm like, wait a second. Because I, you know me, I love a good horror shower scene. It's like classic. I'm super into them. But it's really weird when you have somebody who, regardless of the actress's age, is supposed to be a minor. Yeah, that's real uncomfortable. Like, at least, I mean, she's in high school. Just make her 18 and say she got held back. I believe that that kid got held back. Oh, my God. Don't be rude. <laughs> Just saying. Plus, like, you could actually be a senior and be 18. That's a thing, right? You yeah. were. What's that? Weren't you? Oh, no. You graduated at 17, too. I. Yes, you did. Because you moved down here when you were 17. Never mind. Mm-hmm. I also have an August birthday. So, like, yeah. Anyways. Okay. So, we get that weird shower scene. Then, But Jerry goes up to try to kill her. They get into, like, a little scuffle. There's kind of a chase scene. It's like, it's okay. It's it's fairly short. They go up to the attic and then Jerry ends up like stepping on some insulation and falling through, which is a real thing that, that does happen. And then, oh, I totally forgot. Before that happens, there is kind of this funny scene where he's like, she locked herself in the bathroom because she knows Jerry's trying to kill her and he's banging on the door and the mirror ends up breaking. And she like pulls a great move where she picks up a towel, grabs a piece of the broken mirror and like opens the door and like prison shanks Jerry. Like, it was, it's very, like, I feel like this girl has, like, done some time or something. Because that's not something that a normal person would think of. Good for her. Mm. Learning life skills. Yeah. But she doesn't, her big mistake is she does not stab him in a vital organ because he's, like, fine after that. So then there's this chase scene. Ultimately, like, they're at the top of the stairs and Jerry is, like, gonna, he's got a, a knife. He's gonna stab Stephanie. But mom had crawled her way out of the basement and is at the bottom of the stairs and shoots Jerry. Because remember, I said the reporter had a gun. So she had gotten the reporter's gun that Jerry didn't pick up because he's stupid and shoots him in the leg and then the shoulder, which, of course, doesn't kill him. But then Stephanie grabs the knife and does this like mother daughter double team on Jerry, stabbing him in the heart. And then Jerry mutters, I love you, as he falls down the stairs, dead. This is such a weird movie. Yeah, that's basically the end. The last part is this, like, really weird scene where earlier in the movie, they had put, they had, like, erected a birdhouse in the backyard. And uh, Stephanie saws the birdhouse down with Susan. And I guess that's supposed to be this weird closure scene, but it really just is weird. She also, instead of just like taking the pole like out of the ground like a normal person, she saws the pole in half. So now they have like a half bird house pole in the backyard for no reason. That's stupid. Yeah. So anyways, that's the stepfather. Final thoughts. So as I said before, I had seen this movie before. I thought it was pretty good. I remembered it being kind of creepy wasn't that creepy watching it the second time, which is not unusual for an 80s movie because obviously when you're younger, everything seems scarier. But kind of controversial opinion, I 
don't know if I like this movie that much now. Whereas, like, to be truthful, like, a lot of people really like it. The acting in it is good. Terry O'Quinn is really good, actually, as the kind of, like, weird guy. I think my issue is that the the start of the movie is really good. And then the end of the movie is actually pretty good, too. But it's like the middle gets a little wishy-washy for me. Not a lot happens. It's not suspenseful in the way that I would want it to be suspenseful. Like, I don't know. It's hard to describe, but it's like there wasn't enough of, like, the crazy showing through or, like, Stephanie, like, suspecting him. Like, there was nothing, like, really creepy that, like, she discovers or something. I don't know. It was it was just, like, weird. Nothing really creepy. She just discovered he's a mass murderer. Well, not, not not like that. I mean, there was nothing that, like, she found, other than seeing him talking to himself and being crazy in the bath er, in the uh, basement, there was nothing, like, interesting or, like, ooky spooky that she, like, witnessed. Like, it would be cool if she, like, found, like, some bloody clothes in one of his suitcases and was like, what? Or, like, an Altoids tin full of eyelids. Eyelids? What is that from? That um, is from something. Haunting in Connecticut. Oh, yeah. The Haunting in Connecticut. All I think of is that Saturday Night Live skit. Haunting in Connecticut. What's scary about Connecticut? Losing your tennis racket or pottery barn? <laughs> God. <laughs> Anyways, so that's what I would say. Stepfather is okay. I wouldn't put it on any list of like great 80s horror movies to watch. So in all honesty, you could skip it, but for the fact that you get to see um, Cute Butt in the beginning. Impeen. Impeen. But if you're, you know, if you're like me and have the internet, then you can see peen pretty much whenever you want. Or a husband, you know, whatever. Please, Both work. Please don't talk about my genitalia <laughs> on a podcast that my coworkers listen to. Just wagging around in front of me. All Absolutely long. <laughs> not, Maximilian. <laughs> Just like a majestic elephant's trunk. <laughs> <laughs> Max Joseph. Gently coming to the Oasis nope. for a sip of water. <laughs> anyway. You are cutting a majority <laughs> of, if not all of that. Anyway, so yeah, that's the stepfather. It's all right. Now tell me what you're going to talk about. All right, Peaches. I've got a pretty exciting book for you today. This week, I will be telling you about The Girl from the Well by Rin Chapeco. And you may be asking yourself, isn't the Japanese horror involving a girl in a well played out? Well, surprise, I've got the original girl in a well for you. Hmm. When I first saw it, I read the title as The Girl from the Well. <laughs> I don't know. That's what came to mind. Fuck. Anyway... Let's get to the cover. It's boring. Well, comparatively boring. So, no shade to Torberg Davern, who is the person who designed it. Torberg, huh? T-O-R-B-O-R-G. Oh, that name is probably rough in school. Um, No shade to them. But there is a cover with, like, a creepy girl standing in front of a well with her hair covering her face. Like, it's very The Ring. And this one, still cool. But less so, it's some birds in a leafless tree. And don't get me wrong, I love birds and I love leafless trees, but still. I think they're crows, huh? They look like crows. Yes, presumably. I like a crow. I like the crow. Ugh. Although, know. never mind. We can't. I was like, we cannot get into this because we were just talking about the crow the other day and how like maybe it's kind of misogynistic, but let's... 
We're not detracting down that road. Let's take a look at the barb. Okiku is a lonely soul. She has wandered the world for centuries, freeing the spirits of the murdered dead. Once a victim herself, she now takes the lives of killers with the vengeance they're due. But releasing innocent ghosts from their ethereal tethers does not bring Okiku peace. Still, she drifts on. Such is her existence. Until she meets Tark. Evil writhes beneath the moody teen's skin, trapped by a series of intricate tattoos. While the neighbors fear him, Okiku knows that the boy is not a monster. Tark needs to be freed from the malevolence that clings to him. There's just one problem. If the demon dies, so does the host. So if you can't tell, this is young adult. The blurb alone, the drama. Yeah, it's like the girl needs to save the tortured guy. Pretty much. Weirdly enough, unlike Anna dressed in blood, there isn't surprise necrophilia in this one. They don't make out. Wait, how old are these people? Tark is 15. And he's covered in tattoos? I actually put that in my notes. Okay. Um, there's a very flimsy explanation. Okay. Mm. And Okiku is centuries old because she's a ghost. Boo. A corporeal ghost? Sometimes. Hmm. Sometimes she's not. Sometimes she's visible. Sometimes she's not. It's just kind of what she's feeling in the moment. Anyway, this book has two main elements to it. So first we have like the plot, which I suppose is like it has ooky spooky moments, but it's scary in the same way that like Supernatural is scary because the show, because it deals with like ooky spooky themes, but it's not like actually scary. In the same way, the actual storyline in the book itself is not super scary it's just like like supernatural not the show but the quality but then there are actual scenes of like just straight up horror so it's like both of these things yeah not all horror is scary honestly yeah so first before we go into it we will tell the story of okiku so our main characters learn her story eventually like halfway through but i'm just gonna tell you now so the book mashes together a couple of versions of a Japanese legend, but I'm just going to tell you basically what's called the folk version. Okiku was a servant girl for a samurai, and he wanted her to be his mistress, but she repeatedly refused. And so eventually he hid one of 10 rare plates, like that you eat off of, um, that she was in charge of taking care of. And she counted repeatedly, but could only find nine. But when she still couldn't find the 10th, she decided, okay, I'm going to go tell him. So she goes, she tells the samurai, he said that he would forgive her if she became his mistress. And she refused again. So he threw her down the well and killed her. Oh, that's pretty fucked up. Which if that sounds vaguely familiar, it is actually the Japanese myth that inspired the ring. Interesting. Like, Okiku is the original ghost of a girl in the well. Obviously, like, this book was written in modern times, but that, like, the myth of Okiku and the Ten Plates is an actual Japanese myth. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, in the myth, she comes back to torture him by counting to nine and then screaming at the top of her lungs when she should reach ten. Oh, that'd be so annoying. Yeah, like, when he's trying to sleep. That's when she does it. (laughs) 
Um, so he slowly starts to like go crazy and eventually someone comes and as she's counting to nine shouts 10 before she can scream and she's laid to rest because she assumes that someone found the 10th plate. However, in the book, she kills murderers, artistic license. Uh, she does still count though. She counts obsessively. Like everything she sees, she counts it, Hmm. which factors into the story in a slightly flimsy way. But we'll get there. So the entire story is actually observed through Okiko's eyes, which is really, really cool because she almost becomes an omniscient narrator. But it's still like there's like that little step back. I don't know. It's really interesting. I actually really liked how that part was done. Our other main character is Tark, short for Tarquin. And he's moving to town to be close to the mental facility that his mother is housed in. He is 15, has a bad attitude, and is covered in tattoos. Okay. We learn through his cousin Callie that Tark's mother, Yoko, Tark's mother is Japanese, Tark's father is white. So Callie is white. Anyway, his mother, Yoko, put these tattoos on him at a young age, part of why she's in said facility. If you tattoo a five-year-old from head to toe, people are going to ask questions. Yeah. Anyway, Tark has a rough time at school. It's just the usual. He's an outsider. He's broody. And one day when a girl won't stop bothering him at lunch, a huge flock of headless birds comes bursting through the windows and then isn't really ever talked about again. Headless birds? Yes. Headless birds just come bursting through the window and rain on everybody. And then no one talks about it again. Even though I feel like headless birds raining on you in the middle of lunchtime might be something people talk about for a hot minute. That's pretty, yeah. That's pretty disturbing. Yeah. Yeah. Headless birds. Anyway, he also tries to visit his mother, but she freaks out when she sees Okiku because she can see her. And in doing so, like, knocks down the screen that he's hiding behind while talking to her so that she doesn't see him. And then when she sees him, things take a turn for the worst uh, because she tries to kill him. Ooh. However, things take an even worse turn when he gets kidnapped by a serial killer. Okay. Why are you laughing at that? That doesn't seem funny to me. Because it's out of left field. The serial killer, in the opening of the book, the serial killer is like off to the side and Okiku sees him as Tark is moving in. And you feel like the serial killer is going to be a like the bad guy. Mm-hmm. But then that storyline is resolved very quickly. And you're just like, oh. But it turns out he was the hero all along? No. <laughs> No, he kidnapped and killed children. Kidnapped and killed children. Anyway, um, so he gets kidnapped and Callie is following. Then they are both trapped because Callie follows to the house that the serial killer takes him to and is like, I'm going to go into this house alone. Wait, which one? Ca- oh, Callie. Callie. Yeah, that's not good. I'm going to go into this house alone. Because I'm white and stupid. White characters do stuff like that, too. Yeah. And she goes down to the basement. She's like, Tark, Tark. Because he's like tied to a chair. And then she gets knocked unconscious by the killer. 
Uh, That's the, also the smart thing to do when you go into some a serial killer's house. Start shouting to announce your presence and location. Mm-hmm. So they're both trapped, and the serial killer's like, I'm going to start with you, Callie, because you're pretty. I'm going to start by chopping off your finger. And he starts, like, cutting into her finger. But then Okiku shows up and saves the day by killing the serial killer because she kills killers to release the spirits of their victims. Okay. Good for Okiku. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, good for her. Um, but during it all, Tark is taken over by another force. Clearly, like, a presence that's inside of him. Like, that's all very implied. One that takes blood from Callie and smears on one of his tattoos. It's relevant later. Okay. In the aftermath of all of this, Callie goes to visit Tark's mother. And Tark's mother gives us backstory, honey. So Tark's mother used to be a shrine maiden in Japan, and the women at her shrine exercised spirits, usually by trapping them into dolls. Oh, I forgot to tell you. Um, in Yoko's room at this mental facility, there are dolls everywhere. It's filled with them. Like, there's shelves with dolls. There's tables with dolls. There's dolls on the floor. There's dolls on chairs. It's just, like, filled with dolls. Hmm. I don't know if that facility would let you do that, but okay. Probably not. Anyway, so apparently there once was a woman named Chio who was exceptionally powerful as an exorcist. And if there was ever a spirit too powerful to be trapped into a doll, Chio just took the spirit into herself. What could possibly go wrong? Eventually it became too much and Chio herself had to be trapped. Well, what's a shrine full of ladies, including Tark's mother, who had already married his dad and had him, but had returned to help? What's that shrine full of ladies to do? Well, apparently innocence has power, and who could be more innocent than a five-year-old child? So Yoko traps Chio inside of her son, and then binds her inside with tattoos. Yeah, mother of the year right there. And you thought your childhood trauma was bad. Just kidding. All childhood trauma is valid and no one should be comparing their trauma. Anyway, after Callie leaves, Tark's mother decides that she is going to try and trap Chio in a doll. She's just going to try one more time. So in this mental facility, no one stops her. She's like chanting and shit in a mental facility. And no one's like, well, okay. I mean. But I think candles are involved. Like, I feel like. Yeah, you probably can't have fire. Yeah, no. Anyway, it doesn't go well. Chio beheads all the dolls and Tark's mom before snapping back into Tark. Chio is found like, I think she's like crammed underneath a bench curled up around her head. Hmm. So anyway, turns out Yoko wanted her ashes to be spread out in the country in Japan. So the whole crew, and by that I mean Callie, Tark, and Tark's dad, end up traveling to the shrine while they're there. And Tark's dad is called away on business, but that's cool because Tark and Callie are going to chill at the shrine and the shrine maidens are going to exercise Tark. And I'll gloss over a bit here, but essentially the women at the shrine are almost successful, but apparently Callie's blood, having been smeared on one of the seals, combined with her observing the exorcism ritual, sabotaged it. So Chio escapes, kills all but two of the Shrine Maidens. One of their survivors is named Kagura. She played a bit more of a role throughout this, so I guess I'll mention her. And then in comes Okiku. 
And there's an epic final battle between Chio and Okiku. So Chio and Okiku are fighting and Chio is starting to win. But if you remember the nine plates thing, there's actually a scene earlier in the book where Callie, who's a student teacher, is like teaching a class and there's nine light bulbs and Okiko freaks the fuck out. So Callie's like, oh my gosh, I remember this. So she shouts out counting to nine and Okiko like hulks out, rips the demons out of Chio and saves the day. Okay. Because of that fucking 10th plate. Our story wraps up pretty succinctly at that point. There's like a scene where Callie is like dreaming or something and she sees Okiku like helping Chio pass on and things like that. It's whatever. But then we jump to a year later where we find out that Okiku is hanging out in Tark, inhabiting but not possessing him. Apparently when Chio left, she left a void and had Okiku not stepped in, he would have been taken advantage of by a more malevolent spirit. And who was she to turn down a gaping hole? Anyway, that's basically it. Mm. Final thoughts. The plot of this book is fine. The writing is fine. The dialogue is not good. Where this book really shines, though, is the horror scenes, which I didn't really talk about too specifically, mainly because they aren't really related to the plot too much. But there are several scenes of Okiku hunting down and killing killers, and they're all super well done. Most of the time, it's through her eyes, but almost, like I said, as if she's the narrator. It's kind of hard to describe, but because it brought the reader a little bit more out of the headspace of the people she was killing, as as opposed to, like, if it were an omnipresent narrator kind of thing, or omnipotent third person, it almost gives it more of a cinematic quality. But there are also what I am considering the book equivalent of jump scares. That you know in a movie there'd be like creepy music and then like a big boom sound right when they turn the corner and like there's Okiku like hanging from the ceiling. But in books, I'm finding that they're much better done. They're not as cheap and gimmicky without the music. So you don't have that like building anxiety that's being manipulated into you by sound effects. Hmm. Anyway, I'm going to give this one three out of five tattoo seals holding the darkness at bay. The story and writing or whatever, but if anything, I would actually recommend reading this for the horror scenes because they're actually really well done. I can get on board with it. Doesn't sound bad to me. Anyway, (laughs) so if you were in The Girl from the Well, would you be killed? I don't think so. Um, I'm not a killer, so Okiku isn't coming after me. And honestly, I think Okiku and I would get along great. We're both quiet, we're both moody, we're both angry, and we're both mildly obsessively compulsive. Would you die in the stepfather? Um, probably. Well, I don't know. Because I guess I would have to be like a part of the family. There's not, well, there's not a lot of death other than the therapist and then the first whole family. But... That's a good question. Maybe. Maybe if, like, I wouldn't really necessarily see it coming. Although, 
if I were like the Stephanie character and I discovered him being all crazy and stuff like that, I would probably be a little vigilant and then I might be able to save myself. So I'm going to go with a maybe. A nice, vague maybe. (laughs) Anyway, folks, thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to find us on social media, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter and Goodreads at Second to Die Pod. You can also email us questions, comments, concerns, and suggestions at secondtodiepod at gmail.com or on Instagram, whatever. And remember, if you can't be first, you can always be second to die.